Please open your Bibles now. We'll turn to the Psalms. Psalm 27. It is a psalm of David, the great shepherd king whose line leads to our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd and overseer of our souls. Let's read Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war may rise against me, and this I will be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord shall take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And our text this morning is the verses 4 through 9. And you are most uh, encouraged to keep that open before you as we work our way through the verses and see them in the context of the psalm. Beloved congregation, brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, it goes without saying, doesn't it, that we live in confusing times and changing times. They're changing in these little things of whether or not we have to wear a mask and how many people can assemble in 
our homes indoors and our properties outdoors and such things. And it can be a little bit confusing just trying to keep up with it and it can be even more confusing when you try to get a handle on it and try to make up your own mind about how real or unreal the problem is. And you can do all that, but you still have to follow government guidelines and be obedient to those in authority. But it can be very confusing. And if that's not confusing, even more confusing, and, and in fact beyond confusing is the intimidation that Christians are feeling in the current cultural moment. The intimidation is there because the good of diversity and of not discriminating is now held up to the church in a new way. The very church that said, stop discriminating, all people are made in the image of God. And the church then and the Christian teachings that are the source of giving true value to every person, now that gets thrown back at the church to say, actually, now you're the wicked, you're evil because you are discriminating against certain lifestyles. And you want a certain straitjacket morality, and when you, do, when, when you desire that, you discriminate against others who apparently are born that way, although in, in the transgender movement more and more, it really doesn't matter at all how you're born. It's just the supreme individual will of you being who you say you are, and everybody has to bow and say that's who you are. We acknowledge it. Whether it works or doesn't work, whether it uh, is good for society or not. And so in the midst of the confusion and in the midst of the intimidation, Christians are looking for direction. We are looking for focus. What really matters here and what things can we let go? Now obviously, the matter of intimidation and morality, that matters a whole lot more than whether you wear a mask. Obviously. We have to make sure that we're focused on the things that really matter. Now, this is not a sermon about wearing masks. This is a sermon about seeking the Lord. Seeking the face of the Lord always. And what that means to have that as the focus. Because in our text, David doesn't leave us with any kind of confusion or question about what really matters. It's not an uncertain thing. He says in verse 4, one thing. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. I'm going to live my life towards it. I want it, and nothing's going to get in my way. If it does, I'm going to scale the mountain. I'm going to go around the obstacle because there's one thing I desire, and that is to see God, to live before God, to live with God always. And he knows that the way to get there is not going to be his own effort. It's going to be by humble prayer and seeking the face of God like God said to do. But it's, it's a wholehearted desire. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that's the one thing needed for us when we're living in the midst of confusion, to live with our God always. And our covenant God, as he reveals himself by his name in this psalm as well, Yahweh. It's there behind all the uppercase L and O and R and D is his name. Yahweh, I am who I am. I am constantly faithful, completely dependable. 
I don't change. I am Yahweh, your covenant God. And the one thing you need always is to live with me. Me with you, you with me, God with us. That's the epitome of what it means to be in a relationship with God that is described and governed by the terms of his covenant. And so we're going to see two things. And the first thing is to dwell in his house, verses 4 through 6 or 7. And then in verses 8 and 9, we especially see, seek his face. So this lovely Psalm 27, where David says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, is not a kind of Psalm where he's like, if only I could have this one thing, but it's so far out of reach, I don't think I'll ever get there. There's no uncertainty of that kind in David's tone. The tone is there set at the very beginning. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? What's the answer? No one. No one. I shouldn't fear anyone if Yahweh is my light and my salvation. He shows me the way and he rescues me when anyone troubles me. I shouldn't fear anyone. And then the second part of verse 1, Yahweh is the strength of my life. He's the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Again, what's the answer? No one. No one. I shouldn't be afraid of anyone. If Yahweh is the strength of my life, there's nobody else who's stronger than he is. So the, the tone is set with confidence. And David ends the psalm that way as well in verse 13 and 14. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. Right here, right now, God would show his goodness to me. He would provide for me, care for me, be my strength, my salvation, my light on my path. And he has that confidence. And so he exhorts all of us and exhorts his own heart in verse 14, wait on Yahweh. If things aren't going right and you're not seeing at that moment that Yahweh is your strength, he's your salvation, he's your light. If you, if you seem like you're just in darkness, wait on Yahweh. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on Yahweh. And so David here can even speak out of personal experience where he had darkness around him, trouble before him, and anxiety in his heart, and he had to tell his own heart, stop, take courage and wait on the Lord. And in that tone of confidence, he says, there's one thing I seek to dwell always in the house of the Lord. And David says this, even in view of enemies coming against him, verses 2 and 3, the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. And then he imagines something in verse 3, though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Well, your heart goes into palpitations just at the thought of someone banging on your door in the middle of the night and who, who's banging on my door? You wonder, is this safe? And David says, I could have a whole army encamp against me and my heart will not fear. That's a remarkable statement of faith, isn't it? And you need to 
Just think of the prophet Elisha in this little town of Dothan and the whole uh, Assyrian army wants to capture him or the Syrians, the Arameans. And there they are all around the, the, the hills, the surrounding hills. They've quietly come there at night and Elisha and his servant get up in the morning and his servant's got heart palpitations and he's all afraid. My Lord, my master, look at all these enemies. What shall we do? And Elisha says, well, hmm? what are you worried about? I don't understand. Can't you see? There are more with us than there are with them. And the Lord had to open the eyes of his servant to see all the angels defending Elisha. David speaks with that kind of confidence that he will be confident even if an army encamps against him. And where does he get it from? Well, then let's go more into our text, his request. One thing have I desired of Yahweh, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life. So he wants to dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of his life. Doesn't that make it sound like he wants to be a priest or a high priest who gets to perform sacrifices and sometimes in the, later in the temple, for sure, they actually even had little rooms, some more storehouse rooms for um, food for the priests uh, or for the poor. And uh, at times there were even people who lived within the temple complex. It seems like David wants that. But then we need to ask, what does he mean by the house of the Lord in verse 4, the house of Yahweh? Well, he describes it in four ways. The first way is house of the Lord, verse 4. At the end of verse 4, he says, to inquire in his temple. That's the second way he describes it, as God's temple. In verse 5, he says, in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion, so his pavilion is uh, the third description, which gives you the sense of something grand and, and kind of ornate and beautiful. And then again in verse 5, in the secret place of his tabernacle or his tent. So we now have temple, house of the Lord, tabernacle, and pavilion. And we need to then ask ourselves, what does David actually have in mind? Because if you were there in the time of David and he said he wanted to inquire in God's temple, you would say to him, what are you talking about? The only thing that could have been called the temple then was the holy place and most holy place where only a priest could go in the holy place and the high, high priest in the most holy place. That's sometimes called the temple. But in David's day, the larger complex is simply the tabernacle. It is a tent. Even the holy and most holy places are built with thick special tent curtains. So it's a tabernacle. It's not really the temple. And the word temple is reserved for later. David wanted to build a temple for the Lord and Nathan the prophet thought it was a great idea until the Lord said, no, your son has to build it. And all David got to do was gather the raw materials to build the temple that Solomon, his son, would build. So what is David, where does he want to be, you, you wonder? I mean, he has his palace, and it's built as a permanent structure at some point. Why didn't he want to stay in his palace? He can't just go into the tabernacle and dwell there all the time. And why does he call it all these different terms? Well, to get a handle on that, we'll just look at three other psalms. And we'll start with Psalm 61, verse 4. 
These will be three other Psalms of David. And in Psalm 61, verse 4, he says, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. So it's, it's understood to be a place of protection. I don't normally use the New King James, and I think some of the other translations have temple in verse 4, and I don't have the Hebrew in front of me at the very moment, so it's okay. But that's David speaking. He wants to dwell in God's tabernacle. Now go to Psalm 29. And there we're definitely going to have the word temple. Psalm 29, verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare, and in his temple everyone says, glory. Now, again, it's a psalm of David, and he imagines a worship service going on in the temple, and everyone shouts, glory. It's not the case that uh, the priests had to hurry into the tabernacle whenever there was a thunderstorm, and when there was lightning, shout, glory. There's something deeper going on here that David has in mind. And if you look at Psalm 11, I think that will finally unlock it for us. Verse 4. Psalm 11, verse 4. Again, a Psalm of David. Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. So, of course, he's on his throne. If his throne is in heaven, then his temple is in heaven as well. And from there, he acts as judge, as that verse shows. So now we can go um, back to our Psalm 27. And David makes a request there that's just the same as the ending of Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we appropriately use those verses at funerals. They're comforting. And so here too in Psalm 27 verse 4, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life. David imagines, he understands by faith, I should better say, a continuity from the earthly tabernacle to the temple that's coming and to the temple after which it's patterned in heaven. To dwell in the one with God and to be accepted by God through the way of sacrifice is to have the way open to dwell in the other one with God forevermore. And not only in heaven and in the soul, but in, in a new creation with God, where there's no longer a, le a need for uh, the sun, because God shines all the time. And David here, let me put it to you this way, is being a very good student of Moses. When Moses was given by God the directions for building the tabernacle. He had to go up a high mountain, Mount Sinai. And on the top, God gave him all the directions for building the tabernacle. He took that back down and he laid it out for the people. And God would say to him, see that you do everything, build everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. In the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, that pattern on the mountain is understood not to merely be that God gave him architectural blueprints while he was on the top of the mountain, but that God opened heaven 
so that Moses might see and God might tell him what the dwelling place of God in heaven is like and that the earthly tabernacle and temple might become a copy of it. And it's a copy in the sense that it's a place where God dwells and where he makes it possible for sinners to come and dwell with him. And David here has come to understand by the Spirit's work that there is a continuity from earthly worship to heavenly worship, earthly temple to heavenly temple, dwelling with God on earth to dwelling with God in heaven, dwelling with God now and dwelling with God eternally. So one thing have I desired of the Lord that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life. Look, if Yahweh is your strength, if he's your salvation, if he's your, your light and, and the strength of your life and your joy and so on, of course you want to live with him forever. And if earthly worship gives the taste of what is to come forevermore, then, then let's live in it. Let's live in it and live in it always. And so David, we now understand, is desiring both the earthly and the heavenly splendor of dwelling in the house of Yahweh all the days of his life, and then the last phrase of verse 4, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. So when you're near to God, he, he very readily gives you his ear, you can inquire. But you also get to behold the beauty of Yahweh and you think, how do you get to behold the beauty of the Lord who himself is invisible, uh, who says no man can see me and live? And David wants to gaze upon the Lord, hold him in his vision, and never lose sight of him. Dwell with him always like someone in your house, someone you're close to, someone in your bubble. He wants God in his bubble. He wants to be in God's bubble. And he wants to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and inquire in his temple. You've got to keep pulling these things together. Earthly, heavenly, temple, beauty, inquire, all the things you get to do near God. And then you need to understand that the beauty of the Lord is the revelation of his own character and his own nature. What's beautiful about God is his love, his perfect justice. His mercy and his faithfulness, his steadfast love. Where do you see that most? In the temple. Where God says, you can come near to me. I'm going to put my presence there in a very special and powerful way. And I'm holy, holy, holy. But you get to come to me through the way of sacrifice. And when that animal sacrifice is accepted, ultimately as a token of the Lord Jesus Christ then you come near and you worship me and you can inquire in my temple. And to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh is to see how beautiful, how wonderful, how loving he is to give this way of sacrifice and to come near his people. The beauty of the Lord is God shining in his holiness. Psalm 99. The splendor of holiness, it's sometimes translated in the beauty of holiness. There's a beauty to holiness because it's not marked by any kind of sin or temptation or pollution or, or, or it's not stained in any way. It's just pure. It's consuming of all sin, purifying of all sinners whom God has chosen and who repent. 
and splendidly displaying God in all his perfections. And so where there's that holiness and where grace opens the way to dwell in the midst of holiness, that's where you see beauty in the way of sacrifice and forgiveness. So David wants to dwell in the house of forgiveness and of love. And he wants God to dwell with him. So you just think for a moment about your home. Think for a moment about your bubble. And you try to maintain these protocols and restrictions for the good of your neighbor. Maybe you have a, um, members in your congregation who visit very elderly people and you all want to do your best to ensure that they're not going to bring this virus to this senior's home or just to the home of seniors. And so you're very careful about your bubble, but <clears throat> then the question this morning is, whether the Lord is in your bubble. Who lives there? Is God there? Because what we have to follow through here from Psalm 27 is what starts with the tabernacle, then goes to the temple, then in its fulfillment, all of that is just a teaching tool to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. John 1 verse 14. Uh, literally translated, you can say, tabernacled among us. Pitched his tent among us. Um, it's a way to describe the fact that in the word made flesh, we have the holiness, the holy splendor of God uh, contained, if that's possible, in the person of Jesus Christ. It is possible because he's also divine. And displayed through the suffering servant who, by the way of sacrifice, opens the way for us to come to God and dwell in God's house always. And so we go from tabernacle to temple, all of it a picture of Jesus Christ, and Christ is the temple of God, secures for us the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell among us. And so the church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit and individual believers in it as well. And so this this whole theme of temple is meant to tie heaven and earth together and to tie us to Old Testament believers and to tie all of us and bring us together in Jesus Christ and say, there the dwelling of God is with men. There we behold that grace opens the way to the holy God and there we see living with Yahweh always dwelling in his temple. So do you seek to dwell in his house and do you seek that he would dwell in your house? We live in the midst of these COVID restrictions and protocols. And I want to say this about it. When you look at this text and you, you then say yes to the Lord, you say, yes, that's my desire too. When I sit in worship and when I ponder on the grace of God and I let it flow over me, the experience, the joy, the settled peace that comes in my heart is so special. I want to be in that zone, as it were, always. And I wish I could meet all my brothers and sisters every single Sunday and we would all be here. Oh, but there are restrictions right now. And the danger is this, that you say to yourself, well, there are restrictions, we have to obey the government, so you then quell your desire to dwell in the house of Yahweh always. You need to distinguish these things. Keep your desire Make it fervent and don't let go of it and keep praying that we may all meet in worship as we normally do, that God will open the way for that. 
in the right way in his time, don't lose that. But on the other hand, at the same time, you realize for the benefit of your neighbor, you seek not to spread a virus that you may or may not have. You know, at times you just obviously don't know. And you also seek to have a good and cheerful obedience towards the government. And so you can wear a mask. It's not really a problem. But don't ever lose your desire to worship God and to dwell in his house. And don't confuse the one thing for the other. Wearing a mask in worship doesn't mean that you don't really want to worship God anymore. No, your heart's desire should be ever more fervent. We want to gaze upon his beauty in the liturgy as we hear the law and we pray to God and we hear the gospel that says you have the forgiveness of sins from a holy God. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And so as we come to worship each and every Sunday, and even when we we worship in our homes assisted by the live stream, the Lord calls on us to lift up our hearts to Him. And that unity of earthly worship with heavenly worship should be something we still hold on to today as very special. Oh, we, our, our earthly worship is, is a pale reflection in many ways of the heavenly worship. There are all kinds of shortcomings we have in, in our earthly worship. But fundamentally, we should start by saying, let us lift up our hearts to the Lord. Let's, let's lift up our hearts and join the heavenly worship. It says in Colossians 3 verse 1, set your heart on, hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not on earthly things. And in the ancient church, when they used Latin for their worship, the minister would say, sursum corda, sursum corda. There was a choir in Hamilton for many years called sursum corda. And that's an ancient liturgical phrase which meant lift up your hearts. Lift up your hearts so that worship is not merely something happening here on earth, but it is united with the heavenly worship in the heavenly places where Jesus Christ has brought his sacrifice once for all to reconcile God to us and take away the wrath of God against our sins. And there in heaven, a perfect worship takes place and we lift up our hearts to the Lord, sursum corda, every single worship service. That's how we should be desiring to dwell in the house of the Lord, knowing he will take care of us in time of trouble. He'll do all kinds of things which are described in different uh, pictures here, a secret place of his tabernacle. He'll hide me, set me high on a rock, have my head lifted up above my enemies. And you can tell these are word pictures because then he comes back and says, therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle And I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to Yahweh. And it's just in the exaltation of the glory and grace of the Lord. Lift up our hearts to the Lord, dwell in his house. So the one thing needed in the midst of confusion is to live with Yahweh always. We've seen what David means by dwelling in his house and how we should apply that to ourselves. And now we see in verses 7 to 9, seeking his face. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. 
When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Turn, do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Now, we can't consider every word, but that main theme of seeing a face. The Lord said, seek my face. And David said, your face, Lord, I will seek. You know, the eyes are like the window to the soul, it said. But if you don't have those eyes in their proper full facial setting, it's kind of like looking at one star in the heavens and it's all by itself. It doesn't have anything near the glory. You don't understand what it is all by itself. But in the midst of all the other stars, there the star has its glory and its proper place. And here David says, your face, Lord, I will see, because the Lord told him to. You could say this is God saying, seek my face unmasked, without a mask, without me hiding from you, seek the fullness of my face so that you really know me, you really know who I am, and you understand my holiness and my grace. See my whole self unmasked. And the face of God is something we know from the ironic blessing. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. So the Shining of God's face, his pleasure on his people is the giving of his grace, that is the undeserved kindness of forgiveness and acceptance and embrace. And so to seek his face is to seek his grace. And to have his grace is to be brought into his presence and to see what is truly beautiful. We were made, brothers and sisters, for beauty. We're made to long for all that is true and, and to never be satisfied with less than all truth. And we're made to long for that which is truly good and unmitigatedly good without anything bad mixed in. We want pure goodness and we desire beauty. We desire unsurpassed and unfading beauty in the scriptures the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is said to be of great worth in God's sight. It's a beautiful promise, especially for the sisters in Christ because that's who it's speaking of there in Peter's letter. And here, seeking God's face and seeking his beauty is what we're made for. Turn me not away in anger, David says, acknowledging thereby in verse 9 that the hiding of God's face, it would happen because of our sin and God would rightly be angry. And so he says, don't leave me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. And he says, you have been my help. So he's sort of leveraging, as it were, the promises of God and the presence of God in the past and saying, continue it towards me. And so we go from let us lift up our hearts, the sursum corda, to the corum deo, a Latin phrase that if you've never heard, you really should, and you really should, you need to know what it stands for. Corum deo means before the face of God. It doesn't matter whether you're getting up in the morning and having your morning coffee or you're 
going out to work or you're on your lunch break or you're coming in for worship or Bible study, absolutely everything you do, you do before the face of God. And in everything you do, you should seek the face of God, which is then to seek his grace, to forgive your sins and weaknesses, but also to seek his approval. Lord, let this stand in your sight. Establish the work of our hands. Psalm 90, the ending. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That's the prayer that God would shine his face and that we would do everything quorum Deo before God. And as we then come to the end, I want you to notice how personal David makes this in two ways. He says in verse 8, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Yahweh, I will seek. Now, if we all could read Hebrew, we would right away see this because Hebrew more clearly distinguishes between plurals and singulars. Um, when you say you, in English I say you, it can mean you individual or it can mean you all. You go to the south and people say y'all for everybody. They sort of have a second person plural. In Hebrew, seek my face, God's command is in the plural. It's as if God addresses his whole congregation and says to everyone, seek my face. But notice the very personal response. David in verse 9, verse 8 says, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. So David appropriates the command and personally responds. That's exactly how each and every one of us are called to deal with the scripture commands of the Lord. He says it to us all, and each one of us should say, yes, Lord, I, I will seek your face. Don't hide your face from me. I want to have a living relationship with you, and I want to live with you always. That's the first thing that shows how David makes it personal. And the second thing is that he says, my heart says of you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Not my lips, not just my lips, my heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So his mouth is speaking the words, but his mouth is saying it comes from my heart. And by his deeds, he's writing a psalm for the church of all ages to take up the same thing on their lips and in their hearts to dwell in the house of the Lord always and to seek his face. Brothers and sisters, let that be your response to this beautiful psalm. In the midst of a confusion, you don't need to be so confused because you know what is the one thing you need and that you're to seek it everywhere and all the time, to live before the face of God and dwell in his house and live with him. In the midst of intimidation, strength, salvation, light on your path, it's not confusing to know what the Lord wants. It's pretty clear. It's the world that makes it confusing. Don't let yourself be confused in the midst of intimidation. Keep your focus as the Lord has revealed it here and as David has given it to us. Live with Yahweh always. Dwell in his house, he and yours, and love his church. Seek his face always in all of life. Amen.